for epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool. This week, I'm pretty excited to share my interview with Professor Cathy Abbott from the University of Edinburgh in the UK, whose team are studying a particular gene that causes epilepsy called the, and this is a mouthful, the EEF1A2. <laughs> Any ideas for renaming that? Very welcome. Cathy and her team use both CRISPR, a core genomic technology, and whole exome sequencing as part of their work. And as with many types of epilepsy, common comorbidities or associated illnesses include um, developmental delay, autism and intellectual disability. Cathy hopes that her research will be able to help people affected by, yes, the aforementioned rare epilepsy, but also the other epilepsies, as there are so many more similarities and differences. Cathy is very involved with patient communities and has a particular website that she personally set up to um, encourage communications with them. If you are interested in learning more about Cathy's exciting and uplifting research, then stay tuned. Oh, and also do subscribe and press the bell to receive notifications of our weekly interviews. My research is in a particular genetic rare epilepsy, um, but with very much with the hope that it will be applicable more widely to epilepsy. Um, but I, I got into the whole field because I was studying this particular gene just at a, a much more basic science level. And then it turned out that the, the mutations in the gene cause epilepsy. And, that, and then I, we just shifted all our emphasis of the, the research over to, to finding out how it causes epilepsy and whether we could do anything about it. And which gene is this? It's called EEF1A2, which, um, as, we've, <laughs> as we've been saying... is Rolls off the tongue. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful, yeah. Um, not very memorable and a really awkward sort of name for the, for the parents, but we have to live with it. <laughs> and how many people do we know are affected by this? We only know of a few hundred worldwide, but the okay. calculations being done, the frequency would be about 2.7 in 100,000, um, which would suggest that there were, would be thousands of people. But I, I think it, it's um, like a lot of these epilepsies that are only diagnosed through exome sequencing. It's underdiagnosed, and particularly in adults, because most of the exome sequencing has been... and the you know, the epilepsy gene panels have been used predominantly in, in children with early onset. Yeah, kids are cute. So there will be a lot more adults, yeah. And can you um, just tell everybody, please, um, or just a brief explanation, what is um, whole exome sequencing? Oh, right. Um, so <laughs> it's really a way of looking for a genetic cause of epilepsy by focusing on the bits of DNA that code for proteins. So it's much easier to interpret the data from exome sequencing than from whole genome sequencing because if you've got um, a change in the DNA, you know exactly in an exome, you know exactly what that's going to do to the protein. And there are things that you can model the structure and you can predict 
what effect it would have, would the protein fall apart, would it be toxic, that, that kind of thing. Whereas if you've got a mutation that's outside, so that DNA is made up of the bits that code for, for proteins and then all the regulatory regions and so-called junk DNA, mo most of which will have some sort of function. So if you have a change somewhere else, it's much harder to know whether that is actually going to cause epilepsy or anything else without doing a load of experimental work in the lab. So that's why we, we tend to focus on exomes because we, we can be fairly confident about saying whether or not that's likely to, to be causing the epilepsy or not. So the whole genome is like rather diverse to say the least and the whole, and then the exome is a tiny little bit like is it something like 0.2% or something something tiny right something like that yeah yeah that we can uh focus on as is the case with many epilepsies we, we the, you know there well there are lots of comorbidities in addition to the seizures alone is that the case in the rare epilepsy that you're studying yes it is um it nearly always goes with intellectual disability of some degree sometimes very severe uh, um, I think about half the children are non-verbal um, mm -hmm. again about half don't don't walk so it, it can be very severe but it can also be very mild so there are also um, it's, it's enormously variable because there are lots of different mutations so there are children who can walk and talk um, uh, may may have a bit of developmental delay but it that's one of the I guess a challenge in a way for the, the field is actually being able to predict for a child when you've got the, the initial diagnosis what the prognosis is going to be because it's so variable. I think lots of people supposedly understand that if one has a uh, genetic mutation or, or a genetic disease say um, one will have symptoms of that from day one from their, when they're born but that's not always the case right? It's not not always the case and the the age of onset of the first seizure is enormously variable as well some children you know sometimes it's within the first couple of weeks after birth and but it you know there are some children who really manifest with a developmental delay and then don't develop epilepsy until late childhood and so then sometimes the seizures resolve as they get get older because i've noticed this with with other epilepsies you'll have some um say two people with what appears to be a very similar mutation or a mutation of the same gene identified gene but their symptoms are completely different or they vary a great deal and is that the same with this rare epilepsy i, I mean to some extent we think it depends on the mutation if you if you look at the children with exactly the same mutation there is some grouping there in terms uh -huh. of um how bad the seizures are and things but not really whether they're focal or partial or or, or anything that it's very difficult to to correlate at the um the level of the seizure type can you tell us a bit about your lab and the people that you work with we're all basic scientists none of us are, are clinicians um i've got a fantastic team at the moment uh faith grant cavern heather alejandra it's always been quite multinational which is is great um slightly less so at the moment than than in the in the past but we've i've had phd students from all over the world studying this which is great um it's lovely to to cross borders because you know the disease crosses borders epilepsy crosses yeah. borders uh, and you get different insight from different cultures and and i think that can be really useful you look at things from a different angle right yeah absolutely 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think diversity in science is hugely important for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, and how long has your lab been going? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that long? <laughs> oh, yeah, over 30 years, I suppose. Whoa, whoa. So, hang on, how long have you been going with them with this, this specific epilepsy or this specific gene? This specific gene for about 20 years, uh, and the first case was described in 2012. Huh. Um, in a in a human. Oh, you say in a human. So do you see um, uh, this um, mutation in other species? Not the same mutation, but there there's a, a strain of mice that have no EF1A2, um, and they actually that they're, they're more. It's, it's completely different from the human situation yeah. because the humans all have a, a normal copy of the the gene as well as the mutation so it's the heterozygous it's called the mice uh-huh. mice that have absolutely no ef1a2 at all have motor neuron degeneration so it's a completely different sort of um outcome for them but, but that 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 was what i was studying before and what brought you into the human side of things oh i just always wanted to be to become more applied and to be able to translate what we were doing and actually do something that was more helpful medically so the first report came out and then you're always thinking well is this you know is this really the cause is it just a, a fluke and then another one came out very shortly afterwards and they were the same mutations we thought maybe that's the only mutation we're ever going to see and then there was suddenly this sort of slew of other other cases it's a weird thing with exome sequencing and gene panels you know that to begin with you're never quite sure but then once the first few cases have been published that gene is on everybody's radar and they're much more likely to say oh yeah that's what caused the epilepsy in this patient that we saw last year and it I saw it referred to recently as a sort of dynamic diagnosis so you can actually go back to exome sequencing years later and think oh actually now we know this gene is is the most likely candidate we ruled it out at the time because there were no other cases um, so you can kind of keep on getting more and more information by going back to sequencing that had been done without having to retest so I will often see people who aren't necessarily overly um, or aren't professionals in genomics and they'll say, OK, so you only need to sequence your genome or, or do whole exome sequencing once. That is it. And you have all the answers in the universe and it never needs to be looked at again. And I'm just like, I, you know, I'm a scientist, but I'm pretty sure that that is rubbish. You can certainly go back, you like kind of get over yourself, you can go back and actually find things that you weren't necessarily looking for before, or patterns that existed or do exist that you you never recognise. Is that the case? Yeah, absolutely. I would say it was, it would be, you know, they're always talking about the genome sequence as as being like a book, but it would be like having a, a book and it's there on your shelf, but most of it's in the wrong language that you've never, that nobody knows. So it's only when you, when you learn more about the language and you start to be able to translate bits of it that you, that you then start to understand what it means. So you've got all the A, G, Cs and Ts, you've got all the letters, but you don't know the, the meaning behind them. And that has to be a dynamic process. You have to keep going back and referring to it and building in experimental evidence that you've, you've got from other, other sources. Do you know what you're making me think of this... Um 
this is like random, but uh, what I was reading ages ago about, and it was just like some ra- yeah random statement about the similarities in um, the genome between Homo sapiens and bananas. That doesn't make you half a banana. <laughs> and exactly. to say so, or imply such is, you know, a little bit silly to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you work with um, the families that you already know who are affected by the uh, genetic mutation that we've been speaking of? Um, do you like talk to patients one to one or do you, does your team talk with them? Uh, how, how does communication with the actual families affected contribute to your research? That's a good question because I'm not a clinician, so I'm obviously not running clinics and, and seeing people in that way. But I guess the first port of call was really the website. So I set up a website um, very early cool. on. I'd, thank you. I'd, I'd seen just because I was Googling the name of the, the gene, I saw that two um, mothers were trying, had, had got in touch with each other on a fundraising page saying, oh yeah, my daughter's got EF1A2 as well. I've never met anybody else who's got it. And I suddenly thought, you must get this diagnosis, these random letters and numbers, and there's yeah, like- nothing that you can go to. And in fact, if you, if you just google ef1a2 quite a lot of the links you'll get are are to do with cancer i I thought that's going to give people a really misleading impression because it is involved in cancer but in a completely different way so i thought well at least if i set up a website i can put some basic information on there and then i left the comments open and people started to connect through the comments and then Carrie, who I must name check, Carrie Haldeman, who's been amazing all the way through, was one of the first people to find it. And she was one of the mothers that I'd seen on this fundraising page right at the beginning. She then set up a Facebook group. And the Facebook group's now got, I can't remember, it's 150, 200 members or something. So people will quite often hit on the website as the first port of call, and then they get scooped up and added to the, the Facebook group. And that then all the chats go on in there, mainly between parents. And I'm on the Facebook group, but I'm always very careful to say who I am and that I'm not harvesting information for research in that sense, but I'll answer questions if anybody has any. Um, and, I, and I listen. I, you know, I, I listen to what's going on and I try and help that to um, inform the research we're doing. And we're, we're hoping to to do some sort of online conference in the next year or two where we can sort of bring people together that way. That's so lovely. And do you find that through t- talking with these families affected that that influences your the direction of your research? Yes, absolutely, because it, it, this is going to sound blindingly obvious to you, but the seizures are one of the, the, the most important things. Um, dealing with that especially with children who are having multiple seizures every day i think if they could cure one thing that would be the thing most of them would 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 want a pill for sleep is another thing you know disturbed sleep it's it's hard for the child but it's really hard for the parents as well and it and it just has an impact on the on the whole family yeah i was going to say siblings as well right yeah yeah I think siblings are often quite forgotten. They're not the ones who are necessarily unwell. But if your mum and dad or, well, however many parents you might have living with you are completely overcome by the person or the child with the with this specific diagnosis, there can often be, you know, you know, harsh word, but a bit of neglect of the other children, which, you know, is tough. And 
I mean, another thing that um, somebody said, which I thought was quite striking, was was a, the difficulty with the, some of the children who, who have severe intellectual disability and non-verbal. As they grow into teenage years, their behaviour may be very challenging um, in, in public. And she was saying, you know, you don't have anything... If, if somebody's got a named syndrome that everybody recognises, like Down syndrome or something, you can mm. say... This, you know, he's behaving like that because of X. He has and, Yeah, and you can't say that really with the F. Well, you could say it, but nobody it wouldn't mean anything to yeah. to anybody. <laughs> it's such a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should have a competition amongst families. Yeah, what, what shall we actually call this? That would be a great, great idea. So, what do you reckon the next five? 10 years might hold in your research specifically for this type of genetic epilepsy? There are realistic prospects that will start to develop specific therapies, whether it's gene therapy or, um, you know, all the sort of fancy CRISPR type base editing yeah. things or, or just better drugs, drugs that would target, the, you know, target EF1A2, boost it a bit, maybe... I was listening to a talk on migraine a few weeks ago and there's this sort of thing about um, actually using drugs that would treat things and repurposing them to prevent things. So maybe there's something that you could just take as a tablet every day that would just keep everything a bit more stable and dampened down. That would be so cool. I mean, that's, that's something I would like to aim for. But, you know, we were talking earlier about convergence and this idea that... Um, you might have a very rare epilepsy that only affects a very few people, but when you look at that gene and what it does and what the protein does in the cell, that many of these genes are converging on the same sort of um, biological processes. And perhaps if you can find something that helps with a rare epilepsy, it might help much more widely. And there's some really great work in the UK, people like Michael Johnson, who are using this systems biology approach to sort of pull all of this information together and say, yeah, these genes are all operating in this little group and the F1A2 is in one of those groups. So so maybe, you know, not just people who've got even a mild mutation in the F1A2, but perhaps boosting it would just help more generally in in lots of cases of epilepsy. I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that will be the case for EF1A2, but for lots of the genes, that will be true, I think. So there are many more similarities between the rare epilepsies than we might yet know, know of. Yeah. Because there's quite a bit of almost segregation, understandably, you know, um, at least at the moment, between these different diagnoses. But if we, it seems you're suggesting if we bring, sort of, we look at the, the gen genomic variations, there might be actually be kind of come together and so... I don't know, I'm not explaining that very well. No, you're, expl you're explaining it perfectly. That's exactly what I mean. I'm, I'm, I'm one of those papers, I think the one I'm remembering by Michael Johnson, that's exactly the title. It's, it's looking at convergence of rare and common epilepsies. So they, they'll take data from, you know, sometimes where you get um, brain biopsies from people who've had epilepsy surgery and they'll be looking at the genes that are misexpressed in, in those and saying, oh, yeah, so actually that's the same as you see in one of these rare epilepsies. So they're, they're pulling together all of this information 
it's really exciting. It is really exciting. Gosh, I wish they'd, t- they'd taken or used my um, brain tissue for research. They were going to. And then, I don't know, it was like last minute surgery. And so they didn't in the end. It would be so cool to see to see that. And I do wonder sometimes, like, if you have somebody with, say, you know, the common temporal lobe epilepsy, but then if you found these uh, similar genomic mutations within, say, my own brain tissue, how cool would that be? Because, you know, you find out so many, yeah, you'd have these similarities and it would have your brain ticking in a really different manner and channel your research differently and more effectively, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it doesn't even require brain tissue that there's there's also all this work on um genetics in the sense of not just right so we've got a mutation in this one gene and this causes this but you know you've got this genetic profile maybe you've got very subtle changes in three or four of these genes and they've all interacted to give you a milder more common form of epilepsy so that you, you need all of these approaches coming together really i think just a, a quick mention of um, trio sequencing, um, because um, we had a quick chat before we started recording about um, the benefits of whole exome sequencing, um, but also the benefits of um, trio sequencing, which is when your biological mum and dad are also involved. Could you just tell us quickly, um, Cathy, about the benefits of that and why that's worth it? Yeah, sure. So this is really in in cases where with the the rare severe epilepsies a lot of them are caused by what we call de novo mutation so it's a mutation that's seen in that child that's not in the in either of the parents and i should say i'm sorry to use the word mutation um because i know it's it sounds a bit loaded but it's it's just i keep doing it as well but yeah, yeah i don't know causative variant is what what go. I mean. That sounds um, fancier too. <laughs> variants, darling. Okay, do continue. <laughs> um, so so when, you, when you're looking at somebody's exome, most people would have about 15 new mutations in them um, that haven't been seen elsewhere. So if you, you don't want to say, oh, you know, the gene that's causing your epilepsy could be any one of these 15. So what you do is you look at the parents as well and you say, of those 15, actually, you know, six of them came from your mother, six of them, seven of them came from your father. This one is just in you. And your mother and father don't have epilepsy, but you do. So this is the one that we think is causing the epilepsy. So it's, it's really a way of filtering down the information, um, specifically with de novo mutations. Obviously, if you're, you know, one of your parents has epilepsy, then you can do it, look at it in completely the other way by, by saying that... that you know, the variant that's seen in both the parent and the child with epilepsy is the one that's more likely to to be caused it. But assuming the parents are unaffected, it, it just makes the whole process much more efficient. And if you don't do that, you, and you get a report just on um, the variants that have been picked up in the child, it's much harder to know which one is causative. That, in, you know, in other countries can depend on access to funding because in, insurance providers in the US won't always cover sequencing of the parents so then you're left with this could be this could be that which is of detriment well it's likely detriment to the health of the of the individual 
with the diagnosis, but also their family, and actually will cost more over time as well, because treatment is likely to be less effective. Well, I'm generalising here, but you know, it, it would be, I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, but could be more, you could um, get more effective treatment the more data you have, basically, Absolutely. on the genetic mutation. The end goal is convergence, as I said, but there's also precision medicine where you, you actually say, right, so we know that because of the mutation that you've got, you're likely to respond really well to a sodium channel blocker, but it won't affect you even within the same gene. So you, you absolutely need that kind of information to inform decisions. And in some cases, it may be really important to be able to treat promptly. Right. Especially if you're going to give a drug that, that works well in other people but makes your epilepsy worse, you may be affecting developmental outcomes for that child. So it's de definitely much more efficient and economic sound to to get the diagnosis right right at the beginning that's amazing oh also you just made me think of um, a family i know who have a child uh, with um, microencephalopathy and they uh, and the epilepsy that commonly comes with that and, and other comorbidities and they want to know are they likely to have another child that might have that so they don't know if it's a de novo mutation or you know if it's been inherited so i think that's a really positive thing when it comes to trio sequencing too do you think yes it certainly changes your the the risk assessment it, it's quite difficult with de novo mutations to be absolutely categorical mm. um because the what's usually happened not always but almost always is the mutation that the child has had arisen in the germline so it's arisen in an egg or a sperm and you don't know whether that that that's happened you know during during the development right. process in the parent and whether there might be a patch of cells that have the same mutation generally speaking there isn't so i think the risk is usually given as a few percent of a second child inherit but it, but it you know like all these things in reality it's all or nothing you can give somebody a, a percentage chance but there you know it's either going to happen or it isn't i heard i learned recently that you can have mutations but just in a tiny little bit of your body so you could be carrying the mutation just in your swimmers and the, but the, you are not affected in the rest of your body correct yeah absolutely um and it can even you know if if the mutation has arisen late in development of the the embryo which can sometimes happen you could have patches in the brain that have the mutation and not other patches and that could even be worse than having it everywhere there are children who they know a, what they call mosaic which is a bit yes. like a, you know tall shell cat you've got you've just got patches of of cells with with the mutation patches of cells that are normal but when you're talking about a network disorder which is what a seizure is then that can be even worse than having it uniform across the brain. We have any people who are interested, uh, more interested in your work, um, whether they be families, clinicians, academics, what should they do to get in touch with you? I mean, I'm, I'm easy to find on, on Google, so you're welcome to email me. Um, people do all the time. Um, and the website is just called eef102epilepsy.com um, and the comments are open. On, I mean, mo I moderate them, obviously, but they're, but they're open on, on there. Um, right, and, it, and it's in English, isn't it? It is, in, it, it is in English, and actually that's one thing that we realised quite early on that was a, a problem. So, I, you know, there was um, 
a little girl had been newly diagnosed in Israel a few years ago and her mother only spoke Hebrew so her friend was was typing comments into the website in English then of course once the Facebook group was set up I mean I, I'm loath to praise Facebook but because you've got automatic translation on there there are people from all over the world members of the group and you and they just are having conversations in their own language and you just press on translate and that same mother is just taught, speaking in Hebrew on there and people replying in English, she translates it back. And, cool. it, and, you know, it actually, for these rare diseases, it's worth its weight in gold, really. Okay, great. Well, thank you for giving us hope for the future. This lovely conversation. Thank yeah, you, Kathy. I've really enjoyed it, Tori. Thanks so much for asking me. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.